hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen, it's for November 2012. I am writer, hyphen, critic, hyphen, hover gondola, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi there, I'm uh, writer, hyphen, director, hyphen, I don't even know what the hell that is, Paul Anthony Nelson, and with us today is our very special guest... Oh, that's my cue. That's your it's, cue. Um, Geraldine Quinn, who is a singer, hyphen, songwriter, hyphen, writer, hyphen, alleged actor, hyphen... Hyphen dancer, hyphen Bowie addict. That do? <laughs> yeah, that's, no, that's good. Yeah, we we like it. We like impressive. a few dozen hyphens. All right, let's start with PTA, the master, the long-awaited, uh, what we thought was going to be a treatise on Scientology, turned out not to be. Now I didn't get to see it, but I really, really, really was trying to because I read about it and went, oh, that looks. Fantastic. And I had seen some footage and sort of thought, oh, that's going to be fun, but I'm a lazy bastard, so you probably shouldn't let me talk anymore. <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know how most of his films are like really epic in scope, even when they're small character dramas, like, I don't know, Magnolia is just about a bunch of people, but it feels huge. I was kind of expecting the same thing. I thought this was going to be a huge, huge film, and it sort of wrong-footed me the first time I watched it, because... It's actually really small. It's like Punch Drunk Love Small. It's just two people in a in a love story, and it's it's not what I was expecting at all. I don't think the I don't think the the much touted Scientology angle is in there at all. I think it's just color to to add to the cult of personality idea. But it is amazing. It's one that that stays with you. It's kind of it hasn't stopped evolving in my head. You know, at, at some point a film just locks in, and you go, okay, that's what I think of it. Since I've seen it, it's been at least a month, and what I think of it keeps changing, but I, I think it is brilliant. Wow. You... I, yeah, I gotta say, it's the first PTA film that hasn't stayed with me. It's the first PTA film I haven't loved. Um, but by the same token, it is a fascinating beast. You go in expecting an epic because it's got these trappings of an epic. It's shot in 70 millimeter. It's, got these thunderous performances at the front of it. And I've got to say, the performances in this film are among the best of the year, if not the best of the year. There's something going on with Joaquin Phoenix that I th I think PTA broke that boy's brain. Yeah. <laughs> There's something going on there. Like, to watch this and I'm still here back to back, I think you, you would paint a picture of somebody that plays fast and loose with their own sanity. Mm. I mean, if there's no other reason to see it, it's the performances. But, yeah, you're right. It's this tiny, tiny, tiny little story, a uh, little character study at the middle of this huge kind of cinematic cathedral of sorts. Um, it's, um, I think, that, yeah, and you're right about the cult of personality thing. It's also the whole thing about uh, people who have gone through World War II and have been damaged by that experience needing leadership on the other way out, and a lot of these cults and religions and what have you really seized on to people coming out of these sort of situations. And maybe we're finding that a, a bit about that now, post-Iraq War on Terror and the rise of fundamentalism and, and all There's, that. I think, precedent after, well, around the same period, I know evil and war converted to Roman Catholicism. There were a lot of writers in the sort of modernist period who were converting to Catholicism, Roman Catholicism from from an Anglican background or a Church of England background, mm. from a similar feeling of everything's just been, our guts have just got completely ripped out of the way that we think the world is supposed to work and this provides an order. So there might be something interesting in that now. Maybe that's why we're seeing so much extreme kind yeah. of 
ways of thinking and, and of desperate to, for some sort of an order and some sort of an idea of fate so that you don't have to be confronted by the fact that it's all random. Quite <laughs> 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 I also, I also kind of read it as a PTA sort of dissing his own fan base. Because there's this cult of PTA. There's a cult around, around him. Yeah. And especially because, you know, when we, when we saw it, we saw it with him there mm. in, in attendance. And just sort of seeing him up taking questions. And there's a part of me that really thinks that the the Philip Seymour Hoffman character is him and he is tearing down his own... Uh, mythology? Mythology, yeah, that's yeah. it. It's, that's the thing. It's really interesting. To, I'm not sure entirely where he's coming from. Like, I think you can read things into this film, but it was funny because it's the first... I mean, I've only seen it once and I got to the end of it and the prevailing th- feeling in my head was, is that it? <laughs> it just felt really, really minor. And... I, there's a part of me that still thinks it is. I, I really need to see it again to dig into it and, and see if those... Like, because I, I have, you know, some themes have kicked over in my head since that I think it might be about. I mean, yeah, it certainly isn't the takedown of Scientology that we all expected. And I don't think PTA... I think PTA has been very adamant not to take that angle. Yeah. Um, yeah. If anything, he's been very sympathetic towards that sort of angle. But, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, yeah, it just feels like a very a minor story done in a major way. Um, but can we, I mean, this Amy Adams, has she shown this kind of steel on screen before? I've always been slightly underwhelmed by her, but in this film, she slapped me in the face. I thought she was fantastic. Yeah. Like she just has the steel of someone who, if you cross my husband, I will remove your spine and show it to you. Mm. She just has that. Um, and Philip Seymour Hoffman's a lot more controlled than we've seen him before as well, which is really, really great. Um, and not playing the usual schlumpy, world-weary kind of guy. He's this guy who's, you know, puffed up on on optimism, but kind of believing his own press. And, mm. yeah, and, yeah, it's, look, yeah, it is indeed a fascinating film, um, but it just it does not connect with me in the way that his past films have. But, again, I'm open, open to a second viewing. Being a... 15-year-old who's lost in the world, as you are, uh, as far as anyone knows, this is all audio, uh, did you connect to Perks of Being a Wallflower? Didn't see it. Didn't see it. Did you see it? No. If you are 15 and you've never really seen a film about counterculture... (laughs) Can I I just say something? I saw the poster and trailer to this. I just thought it looks like 500 Days of Semester. (laughs) Nice, yeah. Am I like? Is that near it's, the mark? It's just, it's just basically hipster primer. It's, it's like, yeah, you like cool things that the mainstream doesn't like. Let's celebrate that, and that's fine if you've never seen another film that's done this. So, yeah. but you'd be better off saying something like submarine, perhaps. S- submarine, yeah, good one. <laughs> um, any number. Rushmore, of Rushmore. <laughs> lots, of, lots. Well, look, it, it's pretty, it's pretty slight and it's sort of oblivious to its own cliches, and it kind of hits everyone right on the bullseye, like every cliche it really should be avoiding. But the actors are really engaging, like especially Ezra Miller uh, from... Um, we need to talk about Kevin. We do. And, um, <laughs> but, yeah, look, I, I can forgive its, its, its many problems because it is very, very charming. Another, another quick disclaimer, as we have a few of these every year, my partner's the publisher of Sharmil Films that put out You Will Be My Son. Plant! Plant, total plant. <laughs> so it's a drama set in a winery, a French winery. It's of course father it is. And son. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, why is this so good when a film like A Good Year is um, excrement? Uh, 
this film manages to back. avoid. It's not directed by Ridley Scott. Well, there's that, but no, this film manages to avoid that thing where you know every second line of dialogue is a clever metaphor about winemaking and life. But it does have a character who likes to do the the aphorisms, the wine is like life or life is like wine type oh, of thing. Gosh. But the film itself doesn't. It makes me want to drink. <laughs> But I found it really complex and really powerful. I look forward to seeing this one. So the family dynamics are... Is, is, it, is it attacking it from a fresh angle or is it kind of... I think it is because it doesn't have the... The resolution without giving anything away is not the resolution you would ever have if this film was made in America. Hmm. Like, not that all... I, I, I don't subscribe to the cliche that all American films are that sort of sappy. Everyone loves each other in the end. But even... I, I can't imagine an American filmmaker not giving at least some leeway in a way that this film doesn't. It's just kind of unrelenting in the drama, in, in the dynamic. Mm. Mm. Sounds, sounds good. Have it to is, check it out. It is good. Now, Angel's Share. Anyone seen Angel's Share? Oh, man, do you want to pick a film with Sam? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've, I've been really bad this month. I've seen barely anything, and then I think a couple of what I've seen actually come out next month. <laughs> right. Well, okay, oh, very quickly, The Angel's Share is by Ken Loach, the oh, master right. of mm. gritty urban UK realism. Um, and uh, far leftist politics and far leftist politics uh, and this film starts like that you think it's going to be one of those you know hard hitting dramas and then halfway through it kind of it, there's a tonal shift that suggests that his uh, twin brother Donald Loach took over <laughs> for all you ad- adaptation fans out there oh Okay. Uh, are, you, are you being so nerdy? I'm not getting it now. Well, you know that adaptation, Char- you know the Charlie Kaufman, Donald Kaufman yeah. thing, and halfway through the film shifts, and it's oh, like Donald I get Kaufman it now. I've caught up, listeners. I thought for a sec you hadn't seen adaptation. I was about to stop this podcast. No, I had. I have. You, I have. you right were just now. being. It was such an in joke. It was. I just turned myself inside out trying to understand it. Don't it worry, was. I'll and get you back and start making references to Station to Station in no time. <laughs> Continue. And even as I was sitting in the cinema, being very happy with myself for that reference, I was still able. <laughs> to enjoy the film because it turns into a really, really fun, satisfying Well, well Loach is kind of getting getting his fun on a few yeah. times of late. He had Looking for Eric, he had this. Um, I mean, okay, Route Irish was completely serious, but again, but there was a bit of action going on in that as well. It seems yeah. like he's kind of dipping his toe into genre a little bit more. He like, is. This this one in particular, and, and I, I kind of don't want to say what genre the film turns into because it's kind of a nice surprise when you realise what you're watching. But um, yeah, it's a really fun movie. What have you seen? <laughs> I saw God Bless America. God Bless America. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll yeah, yeah. When Bobcat Goldthwait was out. So I saw, I saw it when he was in the question and answer session. Right. And um, so, had an absolutely wonderful moment when uh, Bobcat was up the back. Um, and a woman, were you in that session by the I way, Lee? No. no, he was up the back, and there's a quite significant scene early on when a lot of people who are being annoying in a cinema are, are killed quite brutally. Mm. Um, and the violence is cartoonish and is supposed to be yeah. that, that big. Um, and while that scene was happening, there was a woman. There was a woman across the way on her phone oh my God. playing words with friends. Oh my God! And Bobcat was two rows behind her. And it was quite extraordinary. He mentioned it afterwards in the Q&A. He said that was, I've uh, never seen anything like that. <laughs> and at this point, she's, she's got her head in her hands. As she while should. While her drunk friend behind her is talking far too loud. Going, oh, my God, that's you. He's talking about you there. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, wow. Do you know what Christopher? And just went on. And I turned into the worst um, kind of, I was, I'm like this on trains as well. I just turn around and say, could you please turn that down? <laughs> yeah, so I had to, had to scold some of my fellow cinema goers. That's nothing to do Good. with the film. 
But it was quite funny. Yeah. I liked it. I thought it was very dark and bewitching and bewildering. I wasn't particularly satisfied with the ending of it, though, um, so which I won't go into. But it's, mm. it's quite... It's quite a nice dynamic um, between the main two characters. However, as a female adult, I did find a little bit, oh, I'm going to go down this middle-aged chap who's disappointed with his life and and the Lolita-esque 15-year-old, are we? Okay, let's let's do that again because uh, that's uh, never been done before. But other than that, um, and I hope Bobcat doesn't listen to that and say, what the hell do you know, you horrible cow, but... Other than that, I actually really loved those characters, particularly the one of the best opening sequences I've seen in a long time. Mm. Have you seen this film? I have. Uh, yes. I, was, I found it actually more tonally consistent than World's Greatest Dad, which I know has a lot of fans, but and this one, I, real, I found this really sharp. Even when it falters a bit, it's still really sharp all the way through, and I like that it kind of it doesn't let anyone off the hook. And it's beautiful. Like his, his wife's um, the costume designer, isn't she? Maybe the art director as well, but it's beautiful yeah everything about the way that it's dressed is magnificent yeah it's i think a lot of it really works mm. the targets are certainly deserving the violence is really great i think the um i think the satire is really dead on i love that he's given joel murray something to do because um, mm. i think he's terrific he um, is, yeah. and he's kind of terrific in the way that you both get the rage and the sadness behind the whole thing. Like, he's really quite touching at times. Can I tell you one, one scripty problem I had? Mm-hmm. And again, who the hell am I to say this? But I felt a little bit like there were too many times with both those main characters that we were getting a manifesto. Yeah. We were, get, we were well, getting Goldthwaite's manifesto in the mouths of two very different people who suddenly had exactly the same language. Well, it's funny yeah, you yeah. mentioned that, Geraldine, because that's getting to the prob- my problem with the film, <laughs> is that it really does grow preachy. And repetitive. And particularly in the second half of the film, I felt like I was being talked at. And I'm someone that shares a lot of the views that are in this film, mm-hmm. and I was feeling it was getting a bit kind of you didn't 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 it might be wrong, but I think he actually started the idea by basically writing a manifesto. I'm I'm trying to remember being yeah, in the be. being in the question and answer, but I'm pretty. Oh, no, I might be making it up, but I'm pretty sure he said it sort of started as a as a rant, mm. and there was a bit of me that thought, "Did you just lift some of that for the script?" Because <laughs> <laughs> it it was working fine. Yep. We didn't need to stop and hear all that, but um, I liked. I wanted a bit more of those moments that we got at the start with a crying baby where you <laughs> you weren't quite sure what was it happening or whether it was happening. Yeah, or, yeah. And that was that great dichotomy between what we really want to do to all the people that annoy us and what we will actually do that he kind of t- turned around a few times mm. in the film. Mm. And that was really effective. Yeah. But otherwise, you know, it's it's pacey, it's bright, it's, you know, it's... it's um, it's kind of plucky and punky in that great low-budget kind of way. And, yeah, I, like, I, I felt like I liked this film, but I wanted to really love it. And I just felt in the end it was a bit too – subtext became text in the mm. end and, and it just kind of ruined a little bit for me. But, I, but yeah, I, I still would recommend it. Music also very good. Goldthwait's mm. really good with his music choice and the look of things. Mm. And I think that that gets overlooked a lot of the times. From Bobcat Goldthwait to Julie Delby. A, uh, no, I've not seen this either. <laughs> no.
Okay. Well, if you've seen Two Days in Paris, the film she made a few years ago, very, very funny romantic comedy that kind of is starting to feel like a parallel franchise Dolby's got going to the sort of before sunrise, before sunset. All right. Um, sort of like a lighter version of that. Two Days in New York, same character, except she's now married to Chris Rock. It's really really entertaining whilst still feeling like it's destined to go straight to DVD. Like, it's the sort of film you'll watch at home rather than go out to the, the cinema. It's, kind of, it's, it's pretty light, but I think anyone who liked the first film should like this one. Yeah. Um, I certainly liked it a lot more than, than the press it's been getting. It's what does Chris Rock add to the... Add to the pot. He's great. Well, he's so engaging every time he's on screen that, you know, you can give him almost anything to do and he'll be... But... You didn't understand the hover gondola reference in the beginning, am I to understand? The hover gondola. No, I oh. didn't get it. But then I haven't got half of what's going on. Well, that was, of course, <laughs> the finest moment in the 50 years of the James Bond franchise. The hover gondola. <laughs> the hover gondola. <laughs> what was that in? I can't remember. Ah. They all merge into one film. To me. <laughs> so that means the gondola went off a canal onto land and hover, yeah. hover gondola. <laughs> hover gondola. Along the streets. Please tell me a dude across was... the bridge of size. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me a dude was singing on it the whole time in a stripy shirt. It's uh, James Bond to me is just a series of blurred memories. I yeah, like I I I'm pretty sure that happened in one of the films. <laughs> it, it's it's a striking image. What do we think of Skyfall? I didn't get a chance to see it. I've never kind of invested in the in the Bond franchise. I think it's a brilliant character, and mm. I have a couple of the books that I need to get off my my ginger ass and read. But um, <laughs> I've heard nothing but astonishing things until a Facebook message from a colleague of mine that said, "I hate it. <laughs> I, I absolutely hate it. It's ruined Bond for me." Wow! Um, and I thought that was quite strong. Someone considering... who has never seen the world is not enough. Clearly, yeah. <laughs> possibly. Or, or die another day on Moonraker. <laughs> oh well, I just you know. I just like David Niven in Bridges of Royale. Oh, no. <laughs> but but um, everything else I've read said this is the greatest Bond film of all time. It's the 50th anniversary Bond film, and it feels almost commemorative. It feels like every Bond film ever made in one film. So you've kind of got a little bit of the broodiness of Casino Royale. You've got, you know, a little bit of the, the one-liners and kind of slight misogyny of the early Bonds and you've got the suave stuff and it just feels like it's beautifully made um, I think Sam Mendes, like of course the acclaimed Academy Award winning director Sam Mendes is, is the director behind mm. this film, I was really happy to see he could he did action a hell of a lot better than Mark Forster, mm. who was the Quantum of Solace director, so he really took to the action, he really honours kind of the whole Bond tradition, old and new, and it, it feels like that's kind of what they were going for here. But in the end, I think it comes up as a film that's very, as it's every Bond film ever made, it's the, it shows the best and worst traits of Bond films. What other Bond film can you make, though? Isn't it just a series, I well, may offend people, but isn't it just a series of ticking the boxes of what you need in a Bond no, film? No, I think you're right. I think Casino Royale did a new Bond film. And right. that kind of put a stake in it, I think. And and since then, it, I think it's finding a new model. I mean, the series over time has always kind of done this, though. It's always kind of come back. To, it's it's tried to change and then come back to reset. It's trying to change and come back to reset. And I think this is a bit of a come back to reset. I think, so like the best Bonds, it's got some stunning act, action sequences. The opening to this film is fantastic. Mm. Um, and and it's, you know, and, and it's got... 
some it, it kind of dials down the technology a little bit, but then brings some of the old school technology into it and, and things like that for reasons I won't go into. But it it's also like the worst Bond traits in that it's way too long. It's two hours twenty three minutes. Yeah, it's just, it, um, it could afford to be a little shorter. It's uh, just a bit. Um, and that it's um, it's kind of it's really silly a lot of the time. It has and like most Bonds, it but it's has this bizarre internal kind of lot. It messes with its own continuity in a way that I think is really damaging. Like we clearly saw his origin. With the, clearly happened in the 2000s in Casino Royale and then suddenly we're tacking on bits of Sean Connery's history here and we talk about him being an agent in the 80s and and all of a sudden it's kind of a bit confusing as to what the timeline is because, I mean, Bonds have never paid attention to continuity no. but there was that feeling with Casino Royale that they'd drawn a line under 1 to 20 and started it again and then Quantum of Solace was the first Bond film to kind of suggest that, hey, this all exists within the same timeline. It begins directly after Casino Royale. Mm. Character has memories of things that happened in Casino Royale, so suddenly there becomes this... this. It all feels wrong to me. <laughs> and, well, well, this will feel right because they've gone back to, yeah, stuff happened, but stuff also happened to me in the 60s and the 80s and the thing, and it's this really bizarre kind of melding. I and, and don't I wasn't totally recall any of that. The, the... the Aston Martin with the ejector seat and the bombs. Yeah, yeah. But Ralph this... Silver talking about them being agents together in the 80s. No, I don't, that line passed me by entirely. Yeah. I have no memory of that. Which is weird. Maybe um, Bond wiped your memory. He did. That was what that gadget did. Yeah. Um, well, I look. I I really really like this film. I, I think it is the perfect sort of melding of the that sort of new gritty style that the Fleming, you know, the pay tribute to the Fleming books, but still pay tribute to the campness of the films. And it certainly incorporates all those historic elements in a much better way than. Die Another Day did, which was the 20th film. And because it was the 20th, it tried to do the same thing mm. and pay all those tributes. And this one does it, I think, a lot better. But it's so... There's so many elements that work so well. I mean, the cast is incredible. Yeah, Javier Bardem is, is amazing. Do you uh, think Javier Bardem's character is a cross between Anton Chigurh and the Joker? Feels yeah. like he's <laughs> combining the 2007-2008 Best Supporting Actor performance. I can see that, yeah, yeah. I just really, really enjoyed it. While I do think the third act is okay mm. without being particularly great, and I, I kind of wish they clearly, clearly wanted to get Sean Connery to play a role in the film. You can tell the moment. <laughs> oh, that didn't occur to me. Didn't it? Because that's, that's all I could you think watching it. That would be without a doubt. Without a doubt, right. they, they cast yeah. an actor who looked like him. Had he in Scotland. <laughs> I was so okay. Cl clearly, this isn't a problem for for too many other people. But I was just sitting there, distracted every time he appeared wow. on screen, thinking it's not Connery. What if he turned up, but as the Highlander? <laughs> That's that would have been an interesting that twist. Ruinish. That would have ruined people. There can be only one Bond. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. There Take can it be back. Only yeah. <laughs> See, and I think too. I think this also the fact that it kind of harkens back to some of the old Bonds. I think it exposes some of. Craig's deficiencies in the role. I don't think the I don't think he's as good with the lighter, the quippy stuff. I think a lot of the quips don't really work. Um, and I think this sort of uh, Connery and Craig were my favourite bonds up until this film, and now I sort of think that no, this is. I think Connery's the 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 one true uh, okay. bond. Look, I, I I sound like I'm really down on this film. I, I 
but the truth is, I I had fun with most of it. I, I you know, I I like I love the way it kind of got all its ducks in a row at the end, like started just mm. setting up, yeah, what the team was going to be going forward, and um, yeah, like yeah, no, there's a lot to like, yeah, um, but yeah, I just think it's it's Bond old and new, for better or worse, better, sometimes worse. So, touch it, we touched it on this a little bit with the Bond film. Just bringing up the question, does continuity within franchises and, 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 and adherence to continuity matter to general audiences? Because it's considered a very geeky type thing um, to sort of, I guess, with Star Wars and Star Trek fans and, and Doctor Who fans have this sort of thing about adherence to continuity and does this follow this and what films and TV and non-canonical texts break the, you know, uh, break the rules and all that sort of thing. But I kind of have a bit of a different view on it that's not necessarily geeky. I want to know what you guys think. Because I think, for one, I think continuity is very important, particularly because I think these days too, so much more of what we consume in cinema and television are these long-running narratives. I think the, the the kind of the victory of one of the victory the offset of the victory of the geeks is in this post Buffy Angel um, lost mm-hmm. world where we've we've got stuff that's a lot more concerned with 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 being having these sort of huge long running arcs and that you know and you know, obviously there's concerns of the real world that get in on them like you have to replace actors or you have to or suddenly your budget gets slashed yeah, and you have Larry to, Hagman yeah. <laughs> All right, R.O.P. My imaginary relative, Major Anthony Nelson. Um, but um, there's all these sort of uh, concerns, and now we've got you know you've got things like the Marvel franchise now that have five separate mm. films that all feed into one, and we're all consistently signposted that this all exists within the same universe. So I think suddenly now the the notion of continuity is becoming more mainstream, and I think now it's something that that you, you know. Joe, Joe and Jane Public are actually kind of responding to. So I think on one hand, I think that continuity is becoming a, a bit, possibly becoming a bit more of a mainstream concern and may continue to become and audiences may actually start to care about it. The other thing I think is that continuity is important in a storytelling sense because if I think oh, they're just going to change this up in the next film or, is, or if the character from this film can't remember the events from the last film, then you sort of, I think it reduces the stakes a little bit. Because you don't care so much. I think you need to define what you mean by continuity because is it going to be just – it's obviously not just casting of people because it depends on the size of the story. When it becomes a story like Sherlock Holmes or Doctor Who, characters like that or Bond that have become bigger, Mm. God, I'm wishing I could think of a female one and I'm very embarrassed about that, but they – they become bigger than yeah, – there are they're archetypes. Yeah. But what you're talking about, I'm not sure whether you mean more a case of, oh, well, Spider-Man wouldn't do that or um, oh, but the Doctor Who, it, the Paul McGann film, uh, but he can't be half human. That ruins everything else. That one. Yeah, that it's, sort of it's on the second one. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of both. Like, like I think audiences get used to an actor being replaced in a different film and stuff like that. But Less it's, so it's in more... television. When you've got long-running, yeah. long-arcing stories like in television, then it becomes I can't see anybody but Brian Cranston as 
Worldwide. Well, worldwide. Yeah. You can't. You can't just recast that. Yeah. You can't just recast um, JR yeah. as somebody else. And it's that thing, I guess, when, yeah, you're kind of Dumbledore, with... though, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like with the Spider-Man things. And now I've kind of got this Spider-Man film that was pretty much like the first Spider-Man film, except he's a bit younger and he's got a different girlfriend, and then they're going to bring Mary Jane into that. That was almost the litmus test for it. Like, can you reboot a franchise that soon afterwards? Usually they like to rest them. But this was so soon on the heels of Spider-Man 3 that mm. they rebooted it with Amazing Spider-Man. It was a decade, yeah. But the thing with Amazing Spider-Man is that we don't actually know how audiences responded to that, almost because the box office was just that perfect amount so that you couldn't say, it's a failure, they don't want reboots, and it wasn't so successful where you go, oh, they don't care. Yeah. It, was yeah. Ju- it walked that line. So, so we actually don't have a good sense of where audiences in general stand. I, I tend to think that there's a moving line of continuity where you know, it's, what people it's, are willing to accept exactly, and I think it's I think it's very fuzzy. But it's that thing of, of like characters doing things in subsequent films that that, and it's different in the case of Batman because that was clearly we're starting again. Yeah, we're we're getting rid of the we're starting again, and and in the continuity of the Nolan Batman films has been very tight, and mm. it's very Batman has a character through line, and characters don't really do anything to kind of contradict what's been set up earlier. Think about things more like that, like things like Casino Royale, where we, um uh, and Skyfall, where we've got the Daniel Craig character talking around or mentioning things that, given the origin story we were shown, he couldn't have possibly done, but. Well, we the know Bond, thing, Bond, in inverted commas, has done that. Well, the mm. Bond thing is tough because there is that there is a popular theory um, amongst certain people that James Bond is a code name. Yeah, 007 is code, nice. the whole thing, and that it's all set in the one world and whenever a new agent is recruited, he gets the title James mm. Bond. Now, I really like that theory. I know a lot of people really, really hate it. Yeah. And there is basically... Not only no evidence to really support it, there's a lot of evidence to say, no, that's complete bollocks, but I still enjoy the theory. <laughs> but you um, do you need the but, theory. Well, you don't, you don't. Like, it. I mean, it's just and a that's fun, that's just a fun thing. But it only came, it only really became important. I mean, not the theory is important, but it really only became a thing after Casino Royale. Yeah. Because that's the first time, as you say, there was a line in the sand. It's a new continuity. We're seeing him being recruited. So we're like, hang on, is this a reboot? Is it's yeah. not a continuation? Hang on, Judy Dench is she the same Judy Dench who's the, been in the previous films? Who yeah. Was, yeah, with Pierce Brosnan, and when she calls him a relic of the Cold War, is that because he's the same Bond as Connery and 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 and, and Roger Moore? And hang on, what? How does this work? And look, most of the time, I mean, with Bond, if there's any franchise where you can just dip in and enjoy a one film standalone, it's Bond. But I still think it raises interesting questions. And if that thing that I totally didn't notice that you picked up on, the idea that in Skyfall he's referring to things he did as Connery, if that is true, then that's really confusing for those of us who like to dig far mm. deeper than we really should. It's more like I think he doesn't actually like refer to Connery's time frame. Like it's not mm. talking about the 60s. It's more talking about Timothy Dalton's time frame. Yeah. Um, but it's also ref- like he's using – Weapon, and it might be just he's he's just kicking an old school like a twenty year old kid picking up a Super Eight camera. I don't know, but when he, when he, you know, opens the shed and there's the Aston Martin from the sixties. I can buy that as him just using an Aston Martin. That yeah. could be, but I don't know. I just got the impression from the character that he's used this before. 
that it's not a relic. It's not like I'm, I, yeah. I picked up a Super 8 camera and I'm filming on this because it's old school. It's like I grew up with this thing. Is there anything in the text? You, you mentioned a line before that, that, that said that he... Yeah, there, there, was, there was a line where, where the Raul Silver character is talking about when him and Bond met before and he clearly mentions 1986 or 87 or something like Could that. Could that be before Which, he was a double O agent? Okay, put the shovels away. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. we're getting into really dirty territory. Yeah, but it's kind possibly. of possibly, possibly. But I think that, you might that, have found the way out. I don't know. Well, I think that speaks to. I mean, ner- nerdy and detailed as this is, it sort of speaks to the idea of what do f- the filmmakers think audiences are prepared to care about. Like, well, look at the first chunk of of, of Conan Doyle stories. Okay, it's an it's episodic. Right? It mm. was a, it was a novel or two, and then he started writing. It became popular, and he started writing episodic. It's, that character should be able to dip in and out of those episodes wherever they are. Yep. And then he kills off Holmes mm. and gets the public outcry and goes, oh, God, I've got to bring him back. So whenever we look at Sherlock Holmes from the distance that we have from when it was being written, there's always going to be somebody who's got their favourite Holmes, but he's sort of become bigger than that. There's still a logic, however, within the falling off the Reichenbach Falls and then mm. coming back yep. that enriches the next section of stories, which then again you have him coming back when he's keeping bees in Sussex or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. But he has to die at some point. The problem I have, for example, with... I like Jeremy Brett, okay? I like Jeremy mm. Brett's 90s sort of homes. For me, as a, a, someone who loves and has read the books hundreds of times, it kept the logic of that legend for me. Mm. The problem I've got with Basil Rathbone is it was making shit up. Yep. It was... There weren't the stories in the books. Mm. So within the, the uh, framework of the stories and that, Great character. You so do whatever you want. You're looking cast whoever you want. Sherlock Holmes is like an overall canon. It's a canon, and yeah. and you're also, you're looking at Bond trying to make sense of what probably should be um, more than Sherlock Holmes episodic. It should just be a character I, that can step in and out. Of I things. think the problem is that when when Daniel Craig's Bond maybe makes a reference to when he was Timothy Dalton, because absolutely, but, but, uh, like like uh, Jeremy Brett will never say, "Hey, remember when I was Basil Rathbone?" I'm saying yeah. they probably shouldn't have done that. Yeah, yeah. that that's right. a problem. Yeah, because yeah. I can't see why I can't think of another character like Bond that should just be able to step in yep. and out of that. Episode and, that's and like a, you said, every film's it's its own film. Yeah, you can just watch it. You know what's going to happen. Well, you know, you know he's going to win. Yeah, yeah. And you just get more and more creative styling and um, the trappings of it. But you know, basically, what your formula is. There's nothing wrong with a formula. Yeah, you're not trying to break any boundaries mm. with a Bond film. So why try and? That's the thing. I think the mistake, the thing I like the most about Christina Royale is the thing they shouldn't have done. Oh, really? Which is create the origin story. Yeah. Oh, okay. They should have just, if they wanted to do a Bourne film, then just make a Bond film but make it gritty and borny and not do the origin story thing. Just have it be, you know, maybe he's trapped in Afghanistan with no gadgets. Sometimes you know, and just what, make that. But sometimes what people want isn't good for them. So maybe people went, oh, this is me awesome. We're going to get the backstory. It's yeah. like, well, maybe it was better if you never knew. And that's the thing. We've become, since in this post-Phantom Menace world, we've become obsessed with the backstory. Mm. And that's the other thing Skyfall adds that's a little kind of new school is that all of a sudden we start hearing about Bond's backstory. And it's kind of like, do we really need this? Mm. Um, but that's digressing. But I think I just think that because storytelling is becoming so much more, mainstream storytelling has now become so, so much more you know, about long-term arcs. I think that 
general audiences who 10 years ago wouldn't give a shit about continuity are starting to give a shit about continuity and will start to notice this kind of stuff. Because now we have film French, five separate films that all happen in the same universe yeah. and come together in the Avengers. We have this sort of stuff. So now audiences are going to start going, but back in that film, I already know people that were annoyed with Don Cheadle in Iron Man 2 because he wasn't Terrence Howard. Yeah. Oh. And I'm not talking about comic book geeks. And I, I just think that it's that sort of thing that's starting to come out of the realm of geekery into the mainstream. And I think that now it's going to become more of a point and that perhaps filmmakers should be mindful of that, for better or worse. So, Geraldine, please tell us, whom have you picked for your... Hell is for hyphen, it's filmmaker of the month. Oh, wow, that was great. <laughs> um, I've chose Aki Karasmaki. Partly because I can spell it, um, but also because I, I think in the late 80s, in the early 90s when I was a teenager and I was very um, uh, watching an awful lot of SBS, watching an awful lot of ABC, but we were getting into film and music and that sort of thing at the time and he was very much a strong cult figure in that period. So mm. he stood out for us. And I'm constantly amazed now that I say his name and no one knows who I'm talking about, <laughs> except for you guys. Well, I was really glad when you when you uh, picked him because I thought, oh, nobody knows who Karis Mackie is. This is fantastic. They should, though. Is it's, that true? Have it's you funny, though, isn't it? Like, because he's such a big name among international filmmakers. You go back and look at his films and you sort of really hard-pressed to pick one that would have penetrated the mainstream. Like, Lynn and Greg Cowboys go America and La Havre, and that's kind of it. Well, Man Without a Past did really well. Yeah, yeah I think but, that was his most successful, definitely in the US. But I, I became aware of him before this sort of late, like his Man Without a Past La Havre phase. And, like, that was around the time of, of Leningrad Cowboys, so he was obviously making some sort of an impact back then. Leningrad Cowboys was huge at the time. I mean, mm. I don't know whether I'm uh, how old I am compared to you, but um, but it was it was a phenomenon, mm. and they were touring, and and it was nothing had ever been seen like it before. And it's very different to a lot of his other films as well, it yeah. should be said. But it, it, nevertheless, it was really good to go back because Ariel, I remember seeing on SBS, um, mm. and. The, the Match Factory Girl I saw at SBS and a lot of those films were constantly on and you got this great underwater sense with with him. And what I like about him as well is he's so... Um, he's got so many themes that keep repeating. He adores music, hmm. particularly rock and roll. Yeah. And the fact that rock and roll sort of represents... Um, this escape, yeah, this dream for definitely. something better. People are constantly shooting themselves in toilet cubicles because <laughs> they're sick of this shit life or they're just trying to get somewhere better but then getting beaten up and robbed halfway there or, or they're, they're meeting in a cafe. There's a lot of cafes and a lot mm. of jukeboxes. And a lot of coffee. A lot of coffee. Yeah. And, and they're meeting and saying, do you want to get married? Yes. Well, maybe we should get to know each other first. Okay, I'll meet you tomorrow. <laughs> and I absolutely love it. And I can think that it would drive so many viewers now mad. But I love it yeah. because he loves Hollywood. He loves the romantic. He loves... Music, but everything's also very bleak. Yeah, and Things the Finnish deadpan sense of humour. Yeah, I was doing a bit of quick research because I was going, oh, when did, what's the whole thing with Finland's population and when it became? How does it feel? It is. Uh, how modern does it feel? It is. Because Leningrad Cowboys, we're talking about about a time when Russia was kind of starting to break down. So yeah. that was sort mm. of a lot of the humour came out of taking these Russian characters and putting them in. America in a very innocent way. 
But what about Finland? And apparently it industrialised quite late so mm. and very swiftly after the 50s, 60s. So you notice that there's no real sense of time in so many of these films. Mm. The furniture all looks like it's from the 60s. The same colours are used in everything mm. and you're never quite sure whether it's a 1986 film or a 2002 film. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's this, yeah, there's this definite kind of... I'm trying to think of a better word, but retro is the only word I can think of. Sort of we call it retro of, now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then yeah, it was the whatever term? furniture was available, yeah. that's what you used. But then, and the cars. Mm. All yeah. the cars are 50s or 60s, maybe 70s. And a lot of them are into that 50s, 60s kind of rockabilly style yeah. music. Like, you know, things like glam rock and Europop don't get a look in no. at all. Mm. It's all, it's like nobody made any music after 1968. And it's all American. It's yeah. all because America represents this this new life and yeah. this hope. All that sort, all that, all that sort of traditional poker stuff. Like it's, it's yeah. usually one or the other. Um, yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's rockabilly or it's yeah, it's really interesting. And what that really struck me, and I was saying to Lee um, earlier in the week, was how relentlessly funny Leningrad Cowboys Go America is. I've got, I should talk about other films. Of course, there are other great films, but. Mm. I hadn't seen it for about 15 years and watching it again, it's just funny all the way through. Even Leningrad Cowboys Meet Moses, which is not anywhere near the same film, but there's one moment where, I don't know if either of you watched it. Yeah, yeah. The crossing the swimming pool. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> We're just, That's just, just kind of out of the blue too. It just comes <laughs> out of the blue. I looked away from the television for a second and then looked back and went, what, just, heck, did that just happen? <laughs> and it's such an awesome visual gag of walking across the water but with slapstick. Yeah. Mm. And um, I, can't, I can't go past it. I just think nobody else would bother to put that much into such a small yeah. moment. He really does throw it away, doesn't he? It's just going boom and then we're moved on. Yep, you don't oversell yep. it, nothing. Yep. And people, it's also you get a lot of grown-up people falling in love, people with interesting faces, people yeah. who are just normal people. Mm. Yeah. Just meet each other and a, something's missing in their life and then they connect. People connect through food a lot. They share food or they save each other or somebody yeah. gets beaten up and then rescued. There's a lot fed. of people coming to Helsinki and being beaten up or robbed yeah. the second they get there. But also <laughs> there's just these connections between strangers, like mm. when the village idiot cousin is trying to catch up with the rest of the Leningrad cowboys and he's in the shoe shop and he has this really beautiful moment with a stranger where they completely wordlessly just sort of look forlornly at a shoe that doesn't have the massive winkle picker yeah. on it and sort of look at each other and look back at the shoe. And strangers are always uh, rescuing each mm. other emotionally mm. in these films, all beating each other up, but mostly... Rescuing. Well, yeah. when somebody gets beaten up, somebody comes in and rescues, exactly. rescues them. And it's so beautiful and simple. And, and, and a lot of... Um, and his protagonists are mainly working class as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. And which I think is an important thing with him. I think he's got he's got a little bit of the proletariat about him. Well, and a lot of people are losing their jobs and they're working in industries that are failing. So, mm. like in Ariel, when I've forgotten the name of the main character, sorry, but when he um he takes all his money out to make a better life and then gets robbed mm. in the first within twenty minutes of the film. Mm. A lot of people have these things happen to them in ten or fifteen, twenty minutes of the film. I mean, the man without a past, he gets off the train and he's beaten yeah. up and he's, mm. everything's gone. But the people who save him, then they connect and then music saves them when they put the band together. Mm. And there's how many scenes of bands um, entertaining yeah. homeless people in these films? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, and dogs. It's lots of dogs. <laughs> so there's this sense of loyalty as, as well. 
That's interesting. One thing I love that that he does is he, he, like right from his first feature, which is 1983's Crime and Punishment, he he's really keen on human behaviour, but it seems like he's keen on it as an alien who's come down and never doesn't really know how it works. So he's kind of trying to replicate it, and there's something quite off about it. But that's a really yeah. good point. You're right because everything's very stylized and and. In the, even down to the performances. Uh, Man Without a Pass, mm. towards the end, when he, he goes back to his wife, and his wife's with someone else who she's in love with, mm. and they go out the front for a cigarette, and the new lover says, should we have a fight now? Yeah. Mm. And he just says, no. And then the new lover says, well, can I give you a lift to the station? <laughs> yeah. All right. And that, yeah. that's so alien. Yeah, it's almost strange. Isn't it? It's like that... You know, the thing in um, uh, Shadows in Paradise keeps walking up to him, do you want me to smash your face in? No. Okay. <laughs> All right, then. Yeah. <laughs> but, and so that would really irritate some people, I'm mm, sure. Yeah. But, but I've really enjoyed it because I, it, it, I think it, um, it strips back a lot of stuff and gets right down to that very core of human connection. Yeah. It's funny you say, I think there's a lot about Archie that's about stripping back. Um, I think it's kind of key, key to mention that his films are mainly really short. They're, they are. Their average running time is about 85 minutes. Like and yeah. no one says very much. Yeah. And some, some are and, an hour. Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of – there's a lack of a lot of the preamble that we'd see in an American film or whatever, that, you know, where you see a car driving along the road. Like we just see them get to the destination. There's a lot of stripping back and just getting to the essential, what do we need to know from yeah. one scene to the next? What do we need to know that's emotional, that tells us something about his character? Anything else, strike it out. And it doesn't matter where they are, they've all got the same archiness about them, whether mm. it's in Paris, mm. or not Paris, whether it's in France or whether it's in England or whether it's in America. Mm. Like watching Cowboys, the moment where he goes in and tries to get a quiff at the barber and the mm. barber just keeps going, no, no, it's too short, and then cut to the barber's just singing a, a, a song to him <laughs> and while he's eating. Yeah. While he sits he's in the barber's him, yeah. chair, he's fed him and he's singing him a song. <laughs> we don't need to know why or where this that guy's come scene from. scene is almost an encapsulation of Arky's aesthetic. <laughs> like it's strangers helping each other. It's kind of it's disappointment music. as well. It's disappointment. It's, it's you know. It's, and uh, consolation. Yeah. Um, and then they just move on. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, yeah, it's, it's, it's Aki in a scene. Yeah, you can't, uh, well, I find it very difficult to sort of put my finger on what doesn't work. Like, as, as you say, that scene where, the, let's get married. Should we go on a date first? Yes, let's. I'm like, I, there's something not right about that, and yet I can't quite verbalise what it I is. Admire the, I admire the efficiency of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But yeah, I really liked crime, crime and Punishment. It, um, yeah, it's it's it, and Archie's style is very dry a lot of the time too, which is kind of something else you kind of have to get used to. Um, I think it slows down a little in the second half, but I think it's really fascinating, and I love the um, I love the way that this guy's so sure of himself. He's so sure he's not going to get arrested. He's doing all these things like, yeah, call the cops. Tell him, yeah, this is my name. He's like, he's always kind of pushing people, daring him. He's the rag with the blood on it. Take it to the police. Mm. And it's like, he's so sure that he's going to get away with it. And it's I, either that or it's people going to prison yeah. uh, who are innocent, who didn't yeah. do anything. And as, as, yeah, as, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, indeed in that film. Um, there's, um, apparently it is an adaptation, a loose adaptation of the Dostoevsky yeah, novel. Yeah. Yep. I would be hard which, pressed not to be wouldn't which it, with that the, title. Which one, yeah, it's called War and Peace, but it's got nothing to do with Tolstoy. <laughs> <laughs> quite early on, he loved messing with those classics. I mean, that's quite a respectful 
adaptation in some ways, but uh, he made uh, a couple of shorts later, uh, Rocky Six, <laughs> the uh, the sequel, and it wasn't actually a sequel to Rocky Five, an unofficial one. It was an inversion of, of Rocky, Rocky Four with the Roman numerals, which is basically his what was it Godzilla meets Bambi? Yeah, you know, just the two seconds. What if? What if Rocky got knocked out immediately? What if Rocky was a weedy little American dude who just got the crap beaten out of him? And he loves messing with that culture. And he did uh, uh, one of the first things I saw of his was Hamlet Goes Business in 1987, which is so laconic. And even though it's not the the quote we took away from it as teenagers that we used to, and watching it back, I don't think this quote is in the film at all. But it, it it's emblematic of the sense that we got from it is a bunch of guys sitting around going, "So we saw your dad last night, Hamlet." Like after a time, like that's the scene, of, and yeah, watching it back, that that quote's not in there, but it sort of sums up the sense that 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 film gave us and the way he likes to adapt these stories. <laughs> and a lot of the openings are really striking too. Like the Match Factory Girl starts with a log, and then the log in the in mm. the machine getting stripped and then getting. Um, eventually becoming a match, basically. Mm. Or the start of La Havre where they're just standing there staring at people's shoes and they're both shoe shiners and they're staring at people's shoes as they walk past and you sit there going, what's going on? Oh, wait, the shoes are gumboots, suede shoes, runners, sneakers that none of them can be shined. Mm. And so you're just cutting from these two people standing very still looking at shoes in a, oh, a railway station or something mm. it yeah. was and then back to cutting to the shoes. So we've got everything we need to yeah. know yeah. straight away. Yeah. Absolutely love it. There's that. There's that. Definitely, definitely that economy of film language and of storytelling. Well, he made a, a silent in '99. He made Juha, which is just a completely silent film. Um, well, you wouldn't have to take my chance no, to make a lot of his films silent. No, there's a lot of the times where I, you know, the the subtitles were a little hard to read on my television and things like that on certain things. And it's like half the time you don't even need because most of them there's no language, and then of the you know, 10% of language that's there, about 4% of that is in English. Mm. And then there's like the 6% of Finnish. It's kind of like, yeah, it, it, he really isn't one to uh, be loquacious. Mm. I liked um, when he does use English and it's so wonderfully um, and purposefully clumsy, like when Marty Pelhamfar sort of says, Spinglish, I mean, speak English. <laughs> and the clumsiness of, of everything that they say in Leningrad Cowboys and then and um, in the Meet Moses as well, it's just, uh, it works just as well. It, it's just as strange and that alien thing. You, yeah. It's such a good description that you gave, Lee, of that feeling of this is someone who's not used to being in society or human society <laughs> mm. trying to represent what they think it is. Well, that's a theme very much at the heart of his second film and clumsily speaking English of Calamari Union, yeah. which I think is the first film of his I watched that I loved. Um, it's, it's so like, anarchic. It's almost like a Beckett play. Yeah. It's this kind of this idea of these people that they all have the same, they're all 17 guys, they're all named Frank, and they're in a town that's really crap and depressed and they're tired of it and they want to go to the promised land. And so they cross the city to find this promised land and like lemmings, they all die gradually or get lost or get, and it's like, and yeah, it's almost this, it's almost Beckett-esque and it's really, it's hilarious for a start. They're all chasing, chasing that ideal too. Yes. 
and then finding something real was next to them all the time, that that's the ideal? Like, yeah, or they just die before they, they find it. Or, or they just them. die, yeah. But they do weird things, like a car pulls up and a guy just sprawls on top of it and the car drives off with him on it. Yeah. And that's how he travels the city, on the front of this car. You know? <laughs> it's... Like the um, the chairs lashed to the roof of vans in, in the Leningrad Cowboys film. There's always somebody <laughs> the who doesn't quite fit in the van and just gets lashed onto whatever they can get lashed onto yeah. to get there. Oh, just... And I didn't understand the stealing of the Statue of Liberty's nose mm. in the second What did that have to do with anything? I'm not sure. <laughs> but it was it was all worth it for that, that swimming pool crossing <laughs> scene. <laughs> but then you look at something like Match Factory Girl's actually very, mm. very bleak. And there's... It's unrelenting. It's very affecting. Like, yeah, really I've got to say, Match Factory Girl is up... It's probably between that and Calamari Union for my favourite of his films. There is such... Mm. It, I think it's everything Arky can do at his optimum in one film. It's the seamless blending of, tra- of tragedy and comedy. Mm. It's the, uh, you know, it's that great examination of, of a working class person and, you know, not fitting into society and their wants and their needs and wanting something more but not being able to get it and then eventually taking power in their own way. And it's like an hour and eight minutes long. <laughs> it's like... It's and it's yeah, and it's just this, this stunning economy of storytelling and character, and bleak as hell, but yet really blackly funny at times as well. Even in his bleakest, you don't feel depressed. No, at the end, like there's um, uh, one thing I was surprised is that you know, given how much press Man Without a Past and Lahav, his most recent film, got, there was a film in between them that I hadn't heard of before called um, Lights in the Dusk, mm. which which is close to my favourite of his films. And that's another one that, that's really, really... It's almost like his um, Dancer in the Dark, really, really bleak and unrelentingly cruel to this one character and yet not not depressing. Like, like I didn't come out of it feeling, you know, as bleakly as I did in Dancer in the Dark. That's what is a good example of somebody who had this idea of their ideal thing that they wanted, whether it was starting his own security business but then meeting that femme fatale mm. and not realising that... Um, the woman who works in the grill, um, what's the grill van? Yeah. That she, who was with him at the end of the film, was clearly the one he should be with all the yeah. time. But he finds that thing he's looking for right by the end mm. whilst he's been blinded by everything he thinks he wants. Yeah. And it's so, there's so many moments of staring into the middle distance in that mm-hmm. film of just, of people kind of talking to each other when not looking, when looking past each other. Mm. There's a few moments in films where people are talking across a table and where the camera's kind of looking at them from the side and then they'll finish what they're saying and then simultaneously the two of them will look out and, and around in opposite directions. Did you notice yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it was choreographed really carefully yeah. and mm. it's strange, strangely. Mm. But um, The fact that somebody would... That Aki would think, no, this is what has to happen in this scene and would carefully choreograph yeah, that. Yeah, we're not going to yeah. cut it. We're just yeah. going to make sure that the two of you then beat and look out. Yeah, mm. and whatever the hell that means to Aki <laughs> and why he's doing that. It's, yeah, he's it, intriguing behaviour. He does seem Almost to have alien behaviour, as you say, robotic. Yeah, he doesn't have a bit of a love-hate relationship with Helsinki. Like, it's, mm. it's I, don't, I don't know whether there's any love at all. I'm not sure, but... It makes him want to go there. Well, he does. He's also got a, a bit of a political bent, which has only cropped up clearly a few times. Like there's Dirty Hands in 1989 and La Havre in 2011. Mm. Dirty Hands was a telly movie, wasn't it? It was, yeah. But it's all, you know, he's quite, suddenly gets very topical. And like with La Havre, he's, uh, 
you know, it's 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 the idea of, of immigration and the attitudes we have towards mm. it. And I really like that there's the, the the metaphor of the main character's wife being sick and that juxtaposed against the suggestion that the country is infected with refugees and you think, hang on, is that what he's saying? And then you realise that, no, the, the infection that his wife has is the infection the country has of this hatred and this lack of empathy. And the moment everyone suddenly becomes empathetic and opens up that's that's kind of when she gets better mm. and you realize that's what was caught sort of infecting her was that that oh i, think, you're, I think you've read a lot into that but that's, <laughs> oh, no, I, think, I think that's there I, I don't think there's any coincidence that the sickness i thought it had more to do with his his um reliance on her at home and his her, her central role in his life mm. and that that not that he didn't see past her at all but I found what I noticed, because I had to watch it in French without English, so I was doing my best with my limited Italian to work out what was going on. <laughs> Pretty clear, though, what's going on. But yeah. um, how how the young boy started to take over a lot of her roles mm. quite overtly seemed um, seemed more direct interpretation. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, there's but... that angle to it, absolutely. Yeah, that's the... <laughs> but I like, I like my interpretation. <laughs> It's uh, the, I've heard that uh, there's actually a Criterion um, Eclipse box set called this, but I've heard that Shadows in Paradise, Ariel, and Match Factory Girl are referred to as his proletariat trilogy. Oh yeah, oh. and it's all there's the Finnish trilogy as well, isn't there? Which is Lights in the Dusk, mm. yes, and what are Man you Without talking? a Past, Man, Man Without, Without a Past, past and... and the first one, with Drifting Clouds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's got a proletariat trilogy <laughs> as well. Yeah. And it's yeah, and it's all these people in working class jobs. Like we've got a garbage collector, yep. a right. miner, yep. and a match factory, uh, an assembly line um, worker. Yeah. Um, and all trying to sort of you know hoping for a better life, and in some places succeeding, and in others not. I loved the man that had passed them all living in shipping containers. It's just got such an incredible sense of a dying industry and people just trying to make do. And they, they still were renting shipping containers mm. from some mysterious man who was in control of everything who had a dog that fell in love with the man without a past yeah, I, lo- I love that this, 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 <laughs> this dog, dog will fell in love tear with you him. apart if you even dare move and it's just and, the, 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 and like a second later you cut to her sleep <laughs> on the bed next to him yeah. <laughs> it's lots and lots of dogs lots of really loyal yeah. friendly he, dogs he loves his dogs he loves uh, he's used uh, his dog Micah he's his dog named Lyca? after his brother Lyca oh, sorry that's Lyca. Lyca. getting his dog yeah. and his brother Lyca mixed up. In, his brother's Micah it's Lyca in La Havre yeah, yeah, because oh, they're all his dogs. Every there's, dog that appears. So we've got, we're getting it um, verified off <laughs> off um, off Mike, but there's a scene in um, Leningrad Cowboys Meet Moses when um, Vladimir slash Moses has one of his throwing things around and Tolerate. screaming like a wild animal, <laughs> and suddenly two dogs just explode out of the side of the screen and just run across. <laughs> I don't know where those dogs just came. They weren't in the scene before, yeah. and. They're everywhere. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's just wonderful. Matty Palampire, I just adore watching as well. Did you notice that the he, he appears Palampire. in, well, because he died in 95. yeah. He appears on the wall in, in a photo in a bar in um, The Man Without a Past. Mm. There's a very distinct and clear mm. picture of him on a wall, which I think That's is lovely. quite nice. Yeah. Mm. I love that a lot of these ideas just come about in pubs or, or that he chooses locations because there's got a great music scene or mm. that musicians pop up in stuff all the time. Yeah. Um, whether they're Finnish or Russian or I don't know if there is a Russian musician, but Joe Strummer turning up in, in things and 
can't remember which film that the, was. The uh, contract killer. I hired a contract. I oh, hired a contract killer. Mm. Got Joe Strummer suddenly. Yeah. And just <laughs> seems like a very Jarmuschian thing to do, doesn't it? Oh, and of course, Jarmusch turns, turns up in a yes. film. He's great. Greg Cowboys. Leonard Greg Cowboys is a used car scene, salesman. <laughs> and in a lot film. of his actors that turned up in Night on Earth, Jarmusch's oh, film. Yeah, yeah. It does surprise me that that more people haven't haven't seen more. Aki Karismaki films. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they have and they just don't talk about it very much. But <laughs> I just had such a ball going back and seeing things I hadn't seen for so long. Well, hopefully everyone listening will go seek out Leningrad Cowboys. At least. And definitely and things like st- Ariel. And yeah, yeah, I think, get, I mean, that, that Ariel and Match Factory Girl and, and yeah, Calamari Union. Great yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and the French films. And yeah, he's a good one. Yeah. I'm glad you um, came with me on that trip. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you for. Thank I you got for beaten up when I got here, though. <laughs> <laughs> and they stole all your money and your car. <laughs> but don't worry. Do you want to get married? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just met you today. <laughs> well, we can go and get a, a date first. Okay, sure. I know this cafe. All the day calls from the sixties. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't talk to you at all. But we'll be madly in love with each other. <laughs> get me some vodka. Uh, brilliant, Geraldine. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll see the rest of you next month. Spinglish! <laughs>